0: Welcome to Good Fellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a General Practitioner, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr Christine McIntosh about sudden, unexpected death of an infant, or SUDI. Christine is a General Practitioner. She works as GP Liaison in Children's Health at Counties Manukau. She's also a Senior Lecturer and Researcher at the University of Auckland and is a clinical editor for the Auckland Regional Health Pathways. She is passionate about SUDI prevention and has been researching this topic for over 16 years. Christine works alongside Cure Kids, and her research has been supported by them. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. So, Christine, I wonder if we could just start by defining SUDI. So, SUDI is the sudden unexpected death of an infant and the first year of
1: life. So we say that that goes up to the baby's first birthday. So these are babies that die suddenly and unexpectedly. And in the provisional finding of a sudden unexpected death, it's literally that. But what we find after they do a death scene examination, they understand the history of the baby and they do the autopsy of the baby. Some of these babies then fall into a category where they've got a defined cause of death. Then we get this group of babies that sit in this situation where we think that something in the history and things suggests Um, there may be some underlying cause but it was not considered enough to have been the definite cause of death so under this we have the group of babies who perhaps were in an unsafe sleep environment and were found um, dead after a period of sleep Um, they um, may have had some underlying medical issues but not considered enough to have been the cause of death and then we get this group of babies where we would have called it the sudden unexpected, sorry, sudden Infant death syndrome, or the SIDS babies, where there was no particular cause of death that anybody can find, and all that. These are all grouped under that whole group of sudden unexpected death of an infant, and um, and when once the coroner has completed the findings, okay. So that's so it's it's quite a, a heterogeneous group of babies, but it's not the ones who die of a pneumonia or a meningitis
0: who are later put into that different category. And how common? is this in new zealand
1: so fortunately the number of babies dying each year has reduced quite substantially so from the uh, the mid 80s we were having around about 250 babies a year dying of a sudden unexpected death in infancy with the evolution of the research that came from the cot death study in the late 80s and early 90s they discovered very rapidly through that study that sleeping babies on their tummy was a big risk at that point we saw a real reduction in the number of babies of dying with about a 60 percent reduction over two or three years which was amazing these days we saw a, um, a real plateau in the numbers through the, the 2000s and more recently another 30 percent reduction but now we're having about 45 babies die per year in New Zealand of sudden unexpected death in infancy um, but a high rate of these deaths for Māori and also for our Pacifica population. So, us in Counties Manukau, that generally means around eight babies a year dying of a sudden unexpected death in infancy.
0: And how do we compare internationally, Christine? So, comparing internationally, so our
1: national rate of uh, sudden unexpected death in infancy is sitting somewhere around 0.75 per thousand live births. So, comparatively internationally, our rate is is high. Um, The USA beat us. They've got a rate around about 1 per thousand at the moment. But in the Netherlands, the rate is 0.1 per thousand. So quite dramatically different from where we're sitting at. So unfortunately, we're famous for having one of the highest rates in the developed world. So why is that, Christine?
0: What's going on?
1: What's going on is that SUDI is one of these, uh, we've got a name for it, but we don't absolutely know all of the cause behind what happens to a baby dying suddenly and unexpectedly, but what we know is that it's quite complex. It's um, one of these conditions that we've studied quite extensively with epidemiology because we haven't found that absolute certain physiological cause. Um, So knowing about back sleeping being protective was a really big advance um, but for us in New Zealand, there's added complexity. There are a whole range of things that contribute to risk for SUDI. And for our Māori population, particularly, there is a real com- combination of those risk factors, being mothers smoking during pregnancy and the cultural preference for bed sharing, being a really difficult combination for SUDI because it really es- escalates the risk up. So those things are quite hard to untangle. We know they're quite hard. Um, it's, it's quite a difficult thing to untangle the whole maternal smoking thing, that's something we're trying to work towards. But there's also the old, whole thing around the bed sharing environment and so forth, So, um, and, and the, the contributing factors towards that. So our Māori population unfortunately bear the, the most of that risk, um, and the, the things that we need to do to prevent that are, are relatively complex and not straightforward.
0: So there's um, the SUDI sequence. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that now.
1: So I guess as a GP, I try to think in my mind, actually, what is happening when a baby dies suddenly and unexpectedly? And SUDI has been extensively researched through the epidemiology and there have been quite a lot of physiological studies as to what's happening as well as as, uh, pathological studies. And um, when we put it all together, what we think is happening is really a combination of factors. We know it happens to a baby at a vulnerable age. So once they get to one year of age, they've pretty much grown out of that risk. In fact, they've pretty much grown out of that risk by about six months of age, and most of our deaths happen in that first six months of life. Okay, So we've got a vulnerable baby at a vulnerable age. But we also know there's other things about that vulnerability of a baby. So if mum smokes in pregnancy, we know that that baby doesn't respond to a situation of hypoxia in the same way that other babies do who are not exposed to mum smoking during pregnancy. We know that the nicotine in cigarette smoke affects the baby's brainstem and reduces that responsiveness as well. So it's a combined effect of the hypoxic environment when one smokes, mum smokes, and the nicotine from mum smoking are both heavily implicated in the SUDI sequence, and that creates the baby vulnerable. There are other things that makes a baby vulnerable such as being born prematurely or of a smaller birth weight. Interestingly if they're not breastfed it makes the baby more vulnerable although the mechanisms of that we're not entirely sure of although obviously it's a healthy thing to do to be breastfed. Um, If mum is using drugs or using alcohol in pregnancy. So we've got that aspect of the baby vulnerability. Now what happens in the SUDI sequence is we know that this SUDI happens during sleep. So sleep is obviously really important. And what we think happens is that babies actually don't respond to a situation that occurs in that sleep in the, in the way that it's going to protect them. So there are two parts that are really important. Firstly, re- reducing that vulnerability. But if we've got a baby in front of us at our six-week check, there's actually fairly little we can do about a lot of those individual baby vulnerabilities, but what we can focus on is safe sleep, okay? So if we can create a safe sleep environment for that baby, even if it's vulnerable, the research suggests to us that that will actually create a survival situation for that baby. So the SUDI sequence describes when an unsafe sleep situation happens, the baby gets into a situation of low oxygen or um, hypercarbia, uh, and it doesn't respond like it should at the brainstem level to cause an arousal and the baby wake up they progress on further through there they don't have the normal um, uh, life-preserving gasping responses and they go on to die because that baby's not programmed in the same way to wake up out of that situation so from my perspective and a simple way to think about it is well we can try and reduce vulnerability by um, creating healthy pregnancies where mum's not smoking in pregnancies no drug or alcohol use. Use. That's one way we can do that as GPs to really work on the early pregnancy thing. But if you've got the baby in front of you at six weeks and you can determine that the baby's more vulnerable, then the best thing that we can do is really enable that family to safe sleep that baby every single sleep. So I think that that gives us a really good handle on what we can do. It's now something that's not random. We know what caused, you know,
0: the underlying risk factors and we can do something really tangible about that. So talking about safe sleep now, what does safe sleep look like and what initiatives are happening in the community to help?
1: Okay, so safe sleep looks like sleeping baby on the back, so absolutely there's very clear evidence that sleeping babies on the back is the way to go and really nice to see in our research in New Zealand that at least 90% of our babies are routinely slept on their back. it's really important that you reassure families that they're not gonna choke on their milk or any regurgitation when they're sleeping on their backs um, because that's a common concern that families have. So number one, on their back. Number two is a safe sleep baby bed. Okay, so that is in a bed where they're not going to end up um, wedged um, entrapped, uh, with the bed covers over their face, um, where they're not going to tip or roll Um, So really what it looks like is a very plain mattress, reasonably firm mattress, with the baby adequately warm but not even overheated, on a flat surface, essentially their own safe sleep space. So this is fine if you've got a baby cot or a baby bassinet, no bumpers or anything else in the cot, no toys in the cot, a fitted sheet, on a firm mattress, baby on their back, with either a nice wool blanket or a wearable baby wool sleep suit is the absolute absolute ideal situation. Um, However, we do know that many of our families have a preference for bed sharing and actually this is a fairly natural human behaviour and so it really needs to be... um, Congratulations to Dr. David Tiffany Leach, who um, came up with the um, concept of reinvigorating the idea of the wahakura, which is the flax woven basket baby bed that can be used on the bed beside or with the parents. Um, and, and similarly the Peppy Pod, which is the plastic box version of the same thing, which is an on-bed baby bed, which means that you can have the advantages of having baby really close to you on the bed environment, but them having their own safe sleep space. So safe sleep looks like a baby on their back, flat, in their own baby bed.
0: So we have a woman in front of us. How, how do we assess risk? I understand there's a safe sleep calculator available now. I wonder if you could talk about that. Okay.
1: We often, I think, um, I've been very interested in this idea as I've been working on the Safe Sleep Calculator, we often make assumptions about risk, unconscious bias, so forth. We often have uh, ideas about risk. And the problem with um, SUDI is the risk factors, there are many of them, and they are quite complex because some of them are independent, but some of them interact, like maternal smoking, and bed sharing significantly interact so how can we make an assessment in an objective way about how big this risk is for this baby and how can we pass on that information so we have taken all of um, the ideas of the research that's happened with the case control studies including the New Zealand cot death study and um, four other large international studies and we've combined that research and created something that would be very familiar to us in primary care like the predict cardiovascular risk tool, we've essentially created a tool that enables that clever determination of what the risk might be for an individual baby and gives us some decision support around what it is that will make the most difference and reduce risk for that baby that's there in front of us today. Um, so this is a basically a checklist of risk factors um, that we've been piloting in primary care that enables us to be much more... Um, reactive to the things that will actually make the most difference to risk there and then. And for most cases, it actually is a safe sleep space for that baby, Um, but it also is going to obviously be reducing maternal smoking and things like that. So it leads us to um, providing the right information to that family, but it also is a very powerful motivator for us in primary care to be working with that family when we see the degree of risks that some babies are at and really wrapping around that care around that family as to what they can do to really reduce that risk. So we've been piloting that in primary care and it is available in some of the practices, but what we got the feedback was, is to build it into a full six week check tool, which is what we are trying to do now. But if people want to access that, they can find the safe sleep calculator on the health pathway for the Auckland Regional Health Pathways and it's also on the 3D Health Pathways um, down in 3D area.
0: Perfect, thank you.
1: So there has been, uh, when I've done that pilot of the Safe Sleep calculator in primary care, there was a um, some very brave nurses who said to me, I don't haven't asked these questions, I haven't asked about SUDI, number one, because it wasn't built in as standard at what we did at a six week check. But also I'm worried about opening Pandora's box, she said to me. I don't quite know what to do once I discover there's a really big risk concern here. And I think we have to address that head on and say, actually, we need to be really thinking about how we respond in primary care to that Mm. and knowing where our local resources are um, to work on that. Um, So I think her comment was really, really helpful because it said, you know, Actually, as individual clinicians, we can often be really worried about delving into this stuff because we may be worried about, do we actually have something that we can do about it? Um, and I thought that was a really important question. Um, in most cases, safe sleeping that baby every sleep is the single greatest risk-reducing thing that you can do. Um, so that's accessing the pepe pod or wakura. Um, and we now have Ministry of Health funding in our DHBs to have safe sleep programs where you can access these safe sleep baby beds. And so I would encourage primary care to really get to know how they uh, how they can go about accessing that. Um, at six weeks, this peppy pod and wahakura might be getting to the stage where actually you might be thinking about a different option if the baby's quite big. Okay. Um, and also some people have pointed out that's sometimes a bit late in the game in the sense that there is still obviously sooty risk in the early stages Um, and so we really need to be thinking about all of this stuff actually right the first time we see a woman in pregnancy or even when they're planning pregnancy um, to really talk about those things and to plan ahead for those um, scenarios and really talk to women about why smoking is a real concern in pregnancy and making sure that we're referring to our pregnancy smoking incentives programmes, which are in many of the DHBs now and are really showing some great success. So um, I think it's really getting really good at tapping into those services and giving a really hot handover to those services to ensure that our um, that we give our best possibility for making healthier pregnancies in our community. Um, So if I hot handover, I don't know whether everyone knows what that means. So hot handover is actually knowing the people that will actually provide that service so that you trust and know that that family that you're handing on to that service are going to get a really good service from them and that you're going to get communication back. So I know the people working in our local Counties Manukau smoking cessation service and I can say to my woman when I see them is that... um, you know, smoking and pregnancy, and we talk about what the issues and concerns would that be, and we assess where they're at with their decision making. But whether they're ready to quit or not, I make them the offer. I say, I'd really like to put you in contact with our smoking cessation service. You don't have to promise to quit or anything like that. I just want you to have some more information about them. They're absolutely fantastic, and. Um, and would that be okay? And I uh, just think it's really important that we support and we give them confidence for where we're sending them. Um, yeah, and they're, they're really good service, yeah.
0: When there has been a sudi death in a family, what is the risk of a further event in a subsequent child? And what advice should we be giving to these families, please, Christine? Um, there does, does need to be consideration about what
1: was, uh, looking through what could have been the causes for that family. Now the majority of deaths come into this category where we suspect they get a situation of an event that occurs in sleep such as um, an um, unintentional suffocation sort of you know event where the baby has that vulnerability and doesn't wake up from that situation. And clearly a baby that was in that vulnerable situation um, and then has a sibling, they often have the same vulnerabilities. okay So if, the, the, if, if a baby's vulnerability is one in one in 50 um, and that baby dies of sudi, well the next sibling that come along comes along often has that same risk of another one in 50 because often things haven't changed for that family and they repeat the same behaviors. And so by chance of course we're going to get repeat episodes. However, there are a small group of babies where we think that they had cardiac event occurs and it's really important to ask about any other sudden deaths in the family. Um, So as GPs, we have that responsibility to actually do we need a paediatrician to actually have a chat with this family and actually talk through what happened with the previous baby and check whether or not there's any further checks we should do for this baby coming along. So, it's often a really good opportunity to access the paediatric service and to get them to have a, a, um, you know, to make that opportunity for that family to have a chat about that. Um, Often they've got a lot of unanswered questions from the previous baby dying. Um, I used to run a clinic where I would see families when the next baby was coming, and um, they seem to gain a lot of, um, they're often feeling very anxious with the next baby coming along. And uh, some family members, if that baby was born, were watching that baby for every sleep. And once we were able to go through the findings for the previous baby and so forth, we were able to reassure them that this would have seemed to have been a situation of a more vulnerable baby and a situation of sleep where they ran into trouble and that they could prevent this happening for this baby by safe sleeping every sleep. And they came out of that situation, you know, that consultation, feeling a lot more confident about what they could do to prevent it for the next baby. It just wasn't going to happen unexpectedly. It was, you know, if they could safe sleep baby every sleep and we enabled that too. With a baby cot.
0: And the role of baby monitoring and apnea pads, is there a role for either of those things? No. So um, when you think about what we're saying with the,
1: the sort of SUDI sequence, baby monitors and apnea monitors uh, work generally, the under mattress ones, by trying to detect a la- lack of movement. The problem for these babies who are not responding and arousing like they st- should. Are still responding. And so when they've caught SUDI on um, uh, cardiorespiratory monitoring for other reasons, what happens is a very prolonged period of hypoxia and inadequate gasping. But the baby might actually be making attempts at breathing. And so an apnea monitor and and an under mattress movement monitor doesn't do the job that you want it to do in that situation. So, no, there's not a role for apnea monitors. Uh, as such, or particularly the movement monitors in preventing SUDI. What we need is a
0: safe sleep environment, every sleep, Mm. okay, it's simple. It's a message we're hearing over and over again, Christine. Yeah, safe sleep. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: I think um, one other thing I'd like to add about that safe sleep is I think there's a lot of value in the discussion with families. So you might understand there's a lot of complexities, especially for our younger parents and the types of sleep environments that baby might have. It's really important to have discussions with them about what happens when a party happens, mm. because we do see a rise in sooty on Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights. And um, distinctively, um, and and to plan ahead for a sober caregiver for a baby and a planned safe sleep every sleep. And it's really talking about how, you know, tell me about how you're going to make sure baby has a safe sleep. You know, accepting that these behaviours are going to happen, as they do, Mm. we're not going to be able to stop those as a GP, but actually... Um, supporting our families to in their decision making and planning around that can be really
0: helpful And Christina, you were involved in a foam insert for car capsules, I wonder if you could talk about that briefly
1: okay. Yep. So way back in uh, 2008 to 2010, I did a trial of a um, foam insert for car seats and the reason why we did this is we noticed um, there had been a number of babies who had been brought into the emergency departments having stopped breathing episodes or turned blue in their car seats. And there was concern about the positions that babies end up in car seats with their head slumped forward and their chin on their chest. And this was part of looking into what some of the mechanisms could be for sudden unexpected deaths in infancy as well. So we trialled the um, foam insert in car, in car seats and we were able to show that using the car seat insert which brought the baby's body forward and allowed a space for the head, created a better position for the baby in the car seat in the sense that we've noticed a reduced depths of desaturations that babies had while they're in their car safety seats. Um, but it also gave um, the strength to the hypothesis that we have is that the baby's upper airway is very vulnerable because of the, um, the shape of the baby's jaw when they're born. They don't have a well-formed temporomandibular joint. Their chin is easily pushed back with the tongue into the upper airway space and that's what happens when they happen in the baby seat is that they end up with the head tip forward, the ch- pressure on the chin and the upper airway blocked. But exactly the same thing can happen when a baby's placed on a pillow to sleep. So you quite often see people doing that um, placing babies on pillows they end up shimmying down in the night and ending up chin on chest. Um, it's really important that we advise parents if baby has a cold not to do this. It seems to be a tendency to put them you know to mm. put them on a slope when they've got a cough or a cold. and we have a number of sudi that have occurred uh, with a pillow or a tri pillow in the mix. And it's even worse when they've got a cold because that upper airway is even more vulnerable. And you just think of that sooty sequence. A baby with a cold and on a pillow can be, really get into a situation of airway obstruction. But if their brain is not programmed to wake up, that's an incredibly dangerous situation. So we have a role when we're seeing sick infants to talk about how to safe sleep them. Mm. And it's a natural thing as a mother when your baby is ill to want them close by. But it's important to remind them about the safe sleep roles, you know, the, the consistent messages around
0: that. So babies spend a lot of time in their capsules, how, how can we make a capsule safe? Are the inserts worth promoting? What do we do here?
1: Okay, so I think, um, I think that car seats are absolutely essential for travel in cars because of the risk of serious injury and a car crash when they're unrestrained in a car. So absolutely, when you're travelling in a car, a car seat capsule is really, really important. A foam insert is ideal, I think, but the bigger picture is, is that we shouldn't be using car seats as a place for babies to sleep when they're outside of a car. So I'm not a big fan of car seats capsules that attach to pram frames and things like this. Babies should sleep flat on a flat surface whenever possible outside of the car. So that would be my recommendation, although we are trying to work with car seat manufacturers to change the the design of car seats. So I think that that in the end is the most practical solution. With regards to advising families when they're travelling with young infants, if they're going to travel any significant distance, and that would be over half an hour, although there's no set time period, to be honest, but practicalities wise, if you're going to go a longer distance, it's really important for somebody to actually be watching that baby. Mm and to take frequent breaks, although we don't have a lot of evidence about how frequently you should take the breaks, but I think it's important somebody watches that baby. It's especially important to think about babies in car seats if that baby has low tone. For example, our babies with Down syndrome um, are much more vulnerable to that head flop situation in their airway concerns. So it is something to be thinking about. And in the big picture, we need to just focus on our consistent messages suited prevention
0: great so wrapping up this podcast talking about consistent messages what would your take-home messages be for our listeners today christine
1: Okay, so our take home messages are do an objective assessment of, you know, and using the safe sleep calculator would be a great way to do that, um, and you'll see increasingly this coming through. But it's also really important that us in primary care that we're consist, providing consistent messages along with the same messages that our midwives and our well child providers are. So in New Zealand now, that's consistent message is the peppy message, and the peppy message is P. Place baby in their own baby bed in the same room as their parent or caregiver. E. Eliminate smoking in pregnancy and protect baby with a smoke-free Fano, Fare, and waka. P. Position baby flat on their back to sleep, face clear of the bedding. E. Encourage and support breastfeeding and gentle handling of baby. So that is our Peppy message and that's the one to reinforce with our families because that's what they're also hearing from their midwife and their well-child provider. Um, so I think the important thing is tap into the resources you have locally have a plan when you know a baby's at
0: increased risk for what you can do to wrap some support around that family fantastic thank you Christine it's been a pleasure talking to you today if you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim some CPD points for listening to this podcast please fill in a reflection of learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. thank you for listening